This is On Minnesota History, a podcast based on the work of Kurt Brown, whose column, On Minnesota History, appears each Sunday in the Minneapolis Star Tribune newspaper. I'm your host, Jennifer Johnson. Well, this one's a little embarrassing for me to admit, but early in my career as a journalist, I I was a a sports writer, and in 1985, when the All-Star Game came to the old Metrodome, I was actually the chairman of the Twin Cities chapter of the Baseball Writers of America. Welcome to the Metrodome in Minneapolis for the 1985 Major League All-Star Game. So it was a little embarrassing when I realized I had never heard of Ozzie Bluegie. He was a little-known architect of the deal that moved the Washington Senators baseball team to Minnesota in 1961. And he discovered slugger Harmon Killebrew on a rainy night in Idaho in 1954. Aussie Bluegie might just be the most influential person in Twins history you've never heard of. With the Chicago White Sox coming to Target Field this month, it's a good time to remember the hard scrabble third baseman from Chicago who endured the sharp spikes of a sliding tie cob, won a World Series in the 1920s, was a manager of the year in 1945, but also picked up an accounting degree in case his iffy knee gave out. Ozzie Bluge actually was working as a clerk in an office in Chicago when he told his father that if he didn't make the major league in two years, he'd uh, keep, quote, pushing a pencil. Ozzie Bluge, the greatest defensive third baseman in the big leagues, who Bill Terry, manager of the Giants, thinks will be the most dangerous player in the World Series. Uh, luckily enough, he was a good fielding infielder. In fact, Bowie Kuhn, the old commissioner of baseball, who used to work as a scoreboard operator as a kid in Washington, remembered his graceful play. Born in 1900, Oswald Louis Bluge was the eldest of three brothers. Their German-born dad, Adam, worked as a nailer at a Chicago box company, but then grew ill when Ossie was in grade school. So Ossie dropped out and went to work, squeezing in time to play semi-pro baseball. The 1920 census lists Bluegie as a clerk at a Chicago plumbing company. Then, a $200 offer popped up to play minor league baseball in Peoria, Illinois. Dad didn't like it, but I told him if I couldn't make the majors in three years, I'd quit. But Bluegie made the majors. Peacetime baseball takes over as all official Washington turns out. It's the first time a president has attended a ball game since Pearl Harbor. He anchored Washington's big league team from 1922 to 1939, sucking up ground balls like a vacuum cleaner at third base. He never seemed to strain at the position. I think Bluegie was so quick, you never saw the rough edges. He was a natural. Never a drinker or a smoker, the mild-mannered Bluegie won three pennants and one World Series in Washington before becoming a manager. Now Mr. Truman's car arrives, and today the chief executive proves himself one of the most enthusiastic fans. He meets Luke Sewell, St. Louis manager, and Ossie Bluegie, boss of the Senators. Then a surprise lefty, the president tosses out the first ball, and the game is on. So he made it to the big leagues and became a manager, but he always had that, that uh, office and business school acumen. 
So he became kind of a front office guy and a scout for the Twins and uh, signed a lot of their players, did a lot of their scouting and a lot of their accounting for the Griffith family, uh, Clark and his nephew, Calvin, who owned the Washington team and moved him to Minnesota to become the Twins. When talks heated up in 1960 to relocate the Senators to Minnesota, Bluegie was at the table. Minneapolis Tribune sports columnist Dick Collum wrote in 1971 that it's not generally known that Bluegie had a major part, perhaps a determining part, in influencing the Senators to become the Twins. The Twins open their first major league season here at Yankee Stadium, the house that Ruth built. It's a big day for Calvin Griffith, president of the Twins. He said he favored the move with persuasive arguments, while others in the organization were hesitant. And if that wasn't enough, he also discovered Harmon Killebrew. They call him Killer Killebrew. He isn't really that type until he gets that bat in his hand. As the senator's money man, Bluegie drew up the relocation contract terms. Seven years before the team moved, Bluegie discovered Killebrew. An Idaho senator with an office in Killebrew's hometown gushed about the teenager whacking home runs in tiny Payette, Idaho. Calvin Griffith was the team owner. Killebrew said in his 1984 Hall of Fame ceremony that I think more than anything else, just to keep Senator Herman Welker quiet, Mr. Griffith sent Ozzie Bluegie out to see me. I had not intended to sign a major league contract. Bluegie rented a car and drove through 60 miles of rain to get to Payette. During that long rain delay, young Killebrew sat in Bluegie's car and they talked about the team's desire to get him to Washington. When the skies suddenly cleared, Killebrew said townspeople poured gasoline on the field and lit it to dry off the moisture so the game could go on. Killebrew promptly thumped a deep home run to left field, a rarity in a ballpark where the fence was more than 400 feet from home plate. The next morning, Bluegie paced off 435 feet, finding the ball in a beat field. He thought that was a pretty good hit for a 17-year-old kid, so he called Mr. Griffith. He said, I think we should try to sign this kid. He had not, not intended to, to do anything, but just asked me to come work out with the, the Washington Club. And, uh, so he drew up a three-year contract, $6,000 a year, with 4000 in annual bonuses. Killebrew, a high school junior whose father had died, took the deal and went on to hit 573 home runs, mostly with the Twins. There's the fastball. There she goes. This ball game is Not all of Bluegie's stories carry the aw shuck sweetness of the Killebrew discovery. His two daughters wrote a book, and, and one episode that they didn't include in the book, and I guess I can't blame them because they are his daughters, uh, but posed kind of an ethical dilemma for me as well. Uh, right when the column was almost done, I did a last little internet search, and I came across a letter written six years after Jackie Robinson broke baseball's color barrier in 1953, 
And the letter came from Ozzie Belugi, at least on his stationery. His daughters now think someone else might have written a handwritten note on there. But the gist of the letter, which is on the Internet, says that uh, they were scouting a Cuban player. And if there was any black blood, African-American blood in this player, they weren't interested. And it's, it's tough to judge the racial sensitivities of 1953 to, through our lens of today, um, but I felt I had to at least include that. And, and one of Ozzy's daughters had seen the letter. She was shocked by it, too, and said, you know, all she could speak to was how he never spoke ill of players of color. In fact, they were often guests in their home. So sometimes history isn't all, all good stuff, and uh, sometimes we have to confront the negative and, you know, it's possible that Ozzy Bluegie's ownership, uh, which had a history of racism um, as one of the reasons they moved the team to Minnesota in the first place, you know, he might have been under orders not to sign any players with black blood. So he might have just been kind of carrying out the orders from above. So it's hard to place this all on Ozzy, but I felt it was important to at least raise the topic. Bluegie died in 1985, 10 days shy of his 85th birthday, in his Adina home. He'd just returned from Washington, where he was enshrined in the city's Hall of Stars. He's buried at Lakewood Cemetery in Minneapolis. On Minnesota History is based on the work of Kurt Brown whose columns on Minnesota history appear each Sunday in the Minneapolis Star Tribune newspaper.